doing? You good? You okay? I see a few thumbs up. It's good to be with you. Last week, we had a really good time at our retreat. Some of you were there, and some of you were here, as well as we explored what, it is, what it's like uh, to be a woman in the church and in ministry. And uh, that was great. If you're wanting to follow that talk, it's now online, and uh, you can find it and uh, go listen to it. Two weeks ago, we had a good time exploring what is it like to try to apply this passage of love and respect between uh, men and women in marriage. And uh, it generated some questions. We had a lot of fun. Uh, Ellen and I were preaching together, and you might have thought, oh, they've been doing this so much. But Ellen reminded me, no, this was like the first time we've ever done it since Lake Worth. And you won't believe how long ago Lake Worth is. It's like 27 years ago. So we had a lot of fun last week. And she said, she reminded me, she has much better memory than I do. She said, you know it didn't go well the first time. <laughs> and, and so I, I share that with you because it might have looked like we were having an easy time. And we really, really were. But it wasn't always easy to be in that kind of synchronicity uh, together and uh, to have that kind of experience uh, together in marriage and in ministry uh, together. It generated some questions, uh, some of the Q&A that we had that we didn't get to address. Someone said, this passage is about married couples, but what about me and my boyfriend or girlfriend? What about me? And I don't know, maybe some of you came out of that text and that experience and that sermon going, what about me? Does this text actually have anything to say to single people? What about me? Does does the church even have anything to really say to me as a single person when we read texts that seem to be very much about married people and households? Do we get to just check out when we have a talk about married people? And you all didn't check out. You actually checked back in. So here we are. We're still doing this walk in love thing, and we're still trying to figure it out. In fact, there are some statistics that say almost 80% of all first-year students coming into university agree with this statement. I think I will get married someday. So obviously, there is something in this text that might be able to to meet you. Maybe by fourth year, you've given up. (laughs) But in first year, you said, oh yeah, I think I will get married someday. And then in fourth year, fifth year, and sixth year, you're thinking, no, maybe not. (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm laughing. It's painful. And that's part of the challenge of this text, is it actually generates a a kind of angst and pain, or maybe it taps into some uh, suspicions in your life about marriage and about households and about family that that you came with, in fact. You came with to university, and you came with to church. You you came with that stuff. You showed up with it. So I want to unpack the text today basically saying, hey, listen, Jesus is in the house, And he still has something to say to people who are single. And so if you're married, you can just quit listening because the sermon is for single people. (laughs) No, 
Yeah, I want you to listen. <laughs> so here we go. We're going to read uh, portions of Ephesians 5 and chapter 6 and uh, follow along. The, Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, and I want to remind you, it has the rich and the poor. It has the, the Jewish and the Gentile. It has um, people who are converts from Judaism. It has people who are converts from the Roman uh, religious cult. It has uh, converts even from uh, the Artemis cult. So like Ephesus is this incredible city. And in every household, they would have had maybe a husband and a wife and children. And in that household, there would also be uh, grandparents who were living in the same house. In that household as well, there would have been uh, servants, people who were serving in that household, some hired, and others who had become bond servants. Uh, we would typically just use the word slave, but they might have been people who sold themselves into a kind of service relationship in that place. And there might have also been some who, in a port city, had been sold into slavery when they came into that city, and they would all be living under one roof. And so their idea of family is much bigger than ours. In fact, when they said family, they said oikos. Oikos. And when they even speak of business and the economy, they spoke of basically household living that the economy was all about this household. And the Roman structure that was present in, in Ephesus had a very strict and developing household code. In fact, in the first century, there was this explosion of laws from Rome about how to manage law and order. And law and order was built around this household identity of uh, men and women husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and slaves. This was the pace. But now that Jesus had come, sometimes whole households had become followers of Jesus together. And so when they came to church, to be the church, they gathered together as all of these people equally on the floor, in the same room, under the same roof, as no longer just in the household of Brian, but now in the household of Jesus. And so how do we live together like that? When our world says live like this, but our household of Jesus says live like this, what are we to do? So Paul's writing into that. And he says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And then in verse 13, he's speaking here of what happens in the heart of someone who's gotten to know Jesus. And he says, everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That is why it is said, wake up, O sleeper. Yeah, Nudge your neighbor. Wake up, O sleeper. You say it with me. I love this phrase. Wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, 
but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then here's the passage that we unpacked a couple weeks ago. And I encourage you, if you're hearing this text for the first time today, uh, keep breathing, don't hold your breath, and then later go and listen to the talk. Because I'm going to just pick out things inside this talk that speak to single people and to all of us. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, or parents, same word, fathers, parents, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, some of you may have a translation that says bond servants, Obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor with, when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each of you, each one, for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So here's our call, as single or married or not. Walk in the way of love, because Jesus is in the house. Walk in the way of love because Jesus is in the house. Now, if you're single, I had to think about what are all the different types of single as a single person in the life of the church. There are the once married but not now persons. 
We, that's, we share life in the church. Once married, but not now. There's also the not yet and hoping to be married people. There's a few of you, fourth, fifth, sixth years, who still feel that way. I'm, I'm not yet married, and I'm hoping to be married. And then there's the never intend to marry person. That you, you secretly hold that. Maybe you don't. Maybe you've created a label. I'm a safe person because I never intend to marry. Kind of button for your life. But this word that we've just read doesn't actually allow you to just check out. You actually need to check in to this word. And there's six things that I think that are really important for those who are single to hear out of this text. And the first is this, that you really are part of us. You really are part of the church. You are still part of the household of, that Jesus is building. You are very much part of it. He says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. So all of us equally have become voluntarily, as a response to this grace of God, we have become his children. And so we are children now in the family of God, that he has caused us to become alive, and we're now part of this. You know, in some churches, it's not easy to feel this way here. But I've had other friends talk about other churches, and they're like, the whole life of that congregation seems to be organized about getting married, having babies, and then taking care of children in the church. Because the only thing I ever get asked to do in that church is to go take care of children. You know, sometimes it feels like the whole life of a church is built around married people and families. And it's true. There are some churches that are like that. But fortunately, we know that congregations and churches come in all kinds of shapes and sizes and with all kinds of values and experiences that help us as a church. And so while we are not trying to organize this congregation at Origin around families, we are trying to organize this gathering as a gathering of folks who are connected to smaller groups who are connected into some kind of community and experience. That's why we keep talking about, hey, have you been a part of a life group? Hey, are you actually going and joining some kind of smaller group? Because it's in that setting that you can know and be known and actually experience some of the connection that happens in being the family of God, in being the household of God. And so we have to say then that by the Holy Spirit, God is always putting an impulse into the life of congregations in which we understand I'm a part of a new family. I'm a part of a new household. Jesus is in the house. The second thing that really should stand out as you read this text is that you don't need a spouse in order to feel the urgency of needing to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, if you are married and you're a follower of Jesus, your marriage will create many occasions where you're like, oh, Lord, help me. (laughs) Oh, Lord, I need help. Oh, Lord, help that person over there. (laughs) 
And, and so you know that you get to these moments of absolute desperation and surrender, and you know I must be filled with the Holy Spirit because I don't have what it takes to be in friendship or relationship. And you don't need marriage to know that. You actually need congregational life to experience that. You actually need some experience of a smaller community in Christ where it's just hard to love each other. And so then you know, oh, I must be filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice what Paul puts together here after he says, wake up, O sleeper, which is a reminder that the gathering of the church is the household of salvation. We are the household of people who are woke. We have been awakened from the dead. Once we were among those who were walking dead. We were spiritual zombies. But now in Christ, we are awake. I hope you are. <laughs> and we are the gathering of those who are saved. But notice what he puts side by side about being a congregation. He puts wisdom and worship right next to each other. Wisdom and worship. In fact, when the early church began to look around and say, who are, who are the kind of people we need as leaders among us? They often looked for people who were full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit. And the, the reason for this, I'll, I'll, I'll draw the picture for you. Can't get away without drawing a picture today. We know we were created for relationships, right? How many? Four. Four kinds of relationships. With God, with self, with other people. And with the stuff of earth. And when we were created in relationships, we become alive in Christ. We've been recreated for relationships now. And to be alive in Christ means we see all of our relationships through the perspective of the cross. Now through the cross, I know, wow, God loves me. I know through the perspective of the cross, wow, I am loved. I'm a mess. I am loved. I know now that in relationship to people, I can choose to love. I want to choose to love. Oh, I need help. Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. We know now that in relation to the stuff of earth, we want to love and steward the stuff of earth. And when we look at life in community, there's two things that begin to happen in this relationship with God and myself. One is, I've actually joined a worshiping community. That fullness of the Holy Spirit is going to bring me into the experience of worship. That's why soon after saying, be filled with the Holy Spirit, he says, sing. Make music in your heart. You know, even if you don't sing well, the Holy Spirit begins to generate in your heart a kind of new song. There's this new interior world that's alive with praise for God, that's moving you in a Godward direction. James says of it about our life situations. He says, listen, are any of you in trouble? Let him pray. Are any of you really happy? Let him praise. Both are God-directed. And so when they speak here of being full of the Holy Spirit, it generates this kind of worship. But in relation to ourself, it's meant to generate a kind of wisdom. 
He says, be wise with how you live. And so it generates a kind of wisdom where I begin to see and take account of how I live, and it pushes me up into my relationships with people, and I become a servant. I want to figure out how do I serve people, and in relationship to the stuff of earth, how do I steward the stuff of earth? Be very careful then how you live, he says. And you don't need a spouse to feel urgency about this, do you? You actually need a community that's provoking and prodding you. In Hebrews 10, he says, Let us consider, brothers and sisters, how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds. That word spur is a wonderful word. If you were a a, a rodeo cowboy, you, you would understand that a spur in the boot actually helps prod that horse into action and motion. And, and so the word there is actually agitate. Let us consider, brothers and sisters, how we might agitate one another. Now, some of you are like, oh yeah, I have a friend like that. And I often feel like I've got one nerve and he is all over it. But, but the movement here is let us consider how we might agitate one another onto love and good deeds. Huh. How can we provoke love and good deeds and actually have some consideration? You don't need a spouse in order for this to become part of your life. In community, you can become a full-bodied emotional person. In Romans, Paul says of this full-bodied emotional life. He says, in the church, we weep with those who weep and we celebrate with those who celebrate. Oh, do you know that in one morning, passing through the life of relationships in a congregation, there are moments where I'm weeping, and there's other moments when I'm celebrating and cheering. Someone lost their scholarship, someone gained their scholarship. Someone lost somebody in their family, and someone gained someone new in their family. And so that just makes you feel like, oh, I'm all over the place but it's actually creating a capacity for full-bodied emotional life. And doesn't that make for better relationships? It's actually good preparation for those of you who want to be married. Because in the same conversation of actually listening and connecting with a spouse, you can mourn and you can celebrate. You can do the happy dance, and you can cry tears. Here's the third reason why this really matters. You don't need marriage in order to adopt submission to Christ and mutual submission to others as your posture in the church. Paul starts this with a word that's for everyone. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, as the church submits to Christ, he encouraged women to submit to their husband in that relationship, in that movement of lifting up and giving a sense of honor and respect and consideration and responsiveness. And you don't need marriage in order to learn that movement. You just need the church. You need congregational life. Because in congregational life, 
we move towards each other in relation to verse 21. So here are two guys in the church moving towards each other in, in a life group. Or maybe they've actually decided their, their, um, their life group is going to go play basketball. They're going to go play basketball together. And while they're on the court, one of them puts an elbow in the ribs. Oh, now what's going to happen? So there's this temptation to say, I'm going to move towards you and knock you out. <laughs> I'm going to take you out today. to Vancouver Island. And these fast ferries were so expensive and they were so beautiful. And they even had like a fast cat on the front of it, like a jaguar. And, and these ferries were going to revolutionize how we traveled between the islands here. And they spent an enormous amount of money and they ran them for about two weeks. And then they decided that there was too much um, Fast ferries were expensive to take care of, and so they couldn't take care of them. And the second issue was that the wake created by the fast ferries actually was so harmful to the islands that they had to go between that they had to slow them down so much that they were worthless because they had to go so slow. Now, some of us want to be a fast ferry. We have this imagination that in relationships, it's going to be quick, it's going to be efficient, and I'm just going to get to the point. Henry Cloud, who's a counselor, psychologist, and um, counselor to Fortune 500 company leaders, he wrote a book called Integrity, The Courage to Meet the Demands of Reality. Integrity. Integrity is the courage to meet the demands of reality. And one of the things he said there, if you want to actually determine if a leader is good, look for two things. First, examine, do they have any transcendent values in their life? Where they recognize I'm a part and willing to be a part of something that's bigger than me and not just about me. Are there any purposes in their life that are bigger than me? And the second thing is, examine who has benefited from their life or who has been washed up by their life. In other words, examine the wake. And if you want to live life as a fast fairy, you're going to find that people are washed up in your wake and they're lying like debris on the beach. But if you will change the way and manner of your life, you can actually add benefit and value and grace and love into relationships with others. There's a great deal of our journey here at university that's about looking out for our own interests. Notice how it's, this is said in, in uh, Philippians 2 in the message. It's really saying, 
you know, that if your life with Jesus is changing you, you're going to look out for more than your own interests. He says, if you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, do me a favor. Agree with each other. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. It's a beautiful picture of what happens in the life of the church. Now, this is ideal, isn't it? We are not there yet. But in the life and ministry of the church, we know that people need to be cared for. And the deep struggle of community in a busy university pressure cooker is to take time to care and to create the connections that care. But this is that fourth point that's really important for us. And this is true, isn't it? People arrive in church the same way they do in marriage in need of Jesus' ministry of transformation. There are no perfect people in our church. (gasps) It's true. There are no perfect people here. And there are no perfect people in marriage. You're not going to date the perfect person. Now, this isn't an excuse for being awful and behaving badly. But this is actually a confession. The confession is, I didn't show up here perfect. But in this community, Jesus is perfecting me. He's working on me. And this feels painful. Do you know, so many times I think we're, we're like the person who, sh- who shows up at the dentist. And the dentist says, oh, please say ah. And we're like, mm-mm. Have you ever seen a kid who didn't really want to be at the dentist? I need to see your teeth. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. I mean, didn't you want to be that person? Didn't you really want to be that kid? You didn't want to let them in. But finally, for whatever reason, I don't know if you were bribed with candy, but you said, okay, ah, uh, and you submit to that difficult experience. But sometimes because church truly is voluntary, we decide, I don't want to submit to the difficult experience of feeling pain in this moment, in this relationship, and the temptation is just to run away. And so the mystery of the church is that God is perfecting us and working on us in the school of holiness. The other mystery in the church is that when we do observe people who are married, we actually get to treat marriage as a sign. Notice Paul quotes this Old Testament passage right in Genesis. He says, um, 
For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So every day in the Genesis account of creation, it says it was day one, there was evening and there was morning the first day, and it was good. And then there's day two, there was evening and there was morning, and it was day two, and it was good. And day three, and it was day four, and it was day five, and it was and day six, and it was very good. Actually, very good. He created humanity, man and woman, and it was very good. And so there is this mystery in marriage where the husband and wife are participating in the creation again of a new family, of a new unit, and it is meant to be good, very good. And so marriage is meant to be a sign. It's meant to be a sign to us that God is doing a recreation work again. And then Paul gets really sort of super spiritual, mysterious here. I mean, it's sort of freaky. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. What? I thought you were talking about this husband and wife. And now he's like, oh, I'm talking about Christ and the church. And here's, I think, what he means by that. He's saying, look, the church is also meant to be a sign. It's meant to be a sign of God's presence with us, of union together in Christ, and of a new creation work again. And so every time the church gathers, there should be a new creation work. <sighs> now I'm excited about coming to church. Woohoo! New creation work? Like something new is going to happen today? I mean, how many of you came today expecting? God's going to produce new babies. Hmm. No, none of you were thinking that. <laughs> but this is the thing. New creation work. New dreams and visions given. New hope born. New passions for seeing God in the world do something. That's why Paul goes on to talk about the households here. He can't avoid it. Look, he talks about the households, and, and he, he says, next, next slide, wives, children, slaves, husbands, fathers, or parents, and masters. And, and he's saying, look, you are in Christ, and so there's supposed to be a new creation work now. And in the church together, there must be a new creation work now. And that new creation work is this. You are part of a God-shaped household. You are part of a gospel-shaped household. And so we must resist the temptation to take the power balances, imbalances that might exist in our own society and keep them in the church. No. In the life of the church, we address those power imbalances and we humble ourselves if we're high and we lift up those who are low and together we stand at the cross of Christ on level ground. We all stand under Jesus 
and it, and it emerges, it leaks, it shines out from the life of a church and congregation that will address the injustices of society inside their own fellowship. That where there is racism, in their own fellowship, they erase it and says there will be gracism. Not racism, gracism. That we now stand equally in the grace of God. And we take that same gracism and we push it out and shine it out in our life and relationships. Notice what he says, do not threaten them. Do not use your position in order to threaten and take advantage of others. As a man or as a woman, as an employer, and praise God, none of us are going to walk out of here today and think, on my way to the car I could, or the bus, I could get snatched and turn into a slave. I mean, nobody here is worrying about that until this moment. But you're not worried about that. And in other places in the world, this is still a fear. I could walk out of this space and get snatched and turned into a slave. It's not our fear here. Praise God. But we are still feeling the impact of it in our world today and even in our university setting. And so we, we know we must become people who in the congregation of the church, in the household of Jesus, Jesus is doing something in our lives that makes us different in the rest of the world. And so whether single or married, I hope our church can do a new creation work where you see yourself and relationships differently. There was a man named John Woolman. He was born in 1720. And as he um, grew, uh, he had some experiences that really changed his life. Even though he was a business person, he was even a tailor, he became a journalist. I mean, listen to this. This guy had some careers. Merchant, tailor, journalist, preacher, social activist. He was an abolitionist who fought for the end of slavery. In fact, if he came to your house and you were serving tea, he wouldn't put sugar in it. Do you know why he wouldn't eat sugar? It's because it was the product of slavery. If during the course of that meal, he discovered that the meal was being prepared by people who were slaves, he might not eat the meal. He would address it there in public with people, and he would actually turn and pay those who had served him at the end of the evening. Awkward if you're the host. He became a great persuader. I mean, the only thing I could think of that might be similar is if, if John Woolman was with us today, he might refuse to use a cell phone, a smartphone, because of the inequality of those who assembled it or those who had mined for the materials that made it possible. We might call him a Luddite, but he would actually be an activist. And his activism arose because of his experiences of Jesus in the church. And this needs to happen over and over and over. Listen to this. This is what he says. If a man is successful in business, expends a part of his income in things of no real use, 
while the poor employed by him pass through difficulties in getting the necessaries of, of life, this requires his serious attention. So he would say it's actually immoral to go spend your life on conspicuous consumption while the people you employ can't consume the basics of life. This is what is meant to happen in the life of the church and in the application of this text. You know, to say that we love God who is unseen and have no love for those who are seen is an extraordinary, extraordinary contradiction. And so the invitation of life together is to actually begin to get rid of that contradiction. I worship the God who is unseen, who's made himself seen through the cross of Christ and in this body. And so I must learn to love. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you've invited us to this table today so that we can learn to love. You've invited us to this communion of your people and the church so that we could learn to love. We want to walk in the way of love because Jesus is the one who has loved us. Help us, Lord Jesus. Amen.